0: conservation, I think the way that we thought about it in the 80s and 90s, it's no longer relevant, right, to the um, reality that we're in now.
1: Watering my lawn one less day a week is not going to provide water for 10 million people.
0: Exactly. That's that's the perfect way to think about it. Exactly.
1: I just want to clarify. Sarah Schlesinger, the CEO of the Texas Water Foundation, isn't telling you not to make an attempt to conserve water at home. There are plenty of benefits to it, including a lower water bill. She's just saying we need to make bigger cultural changes in the coming decades.
0: We use more per household, like double the amount that what the average European family does or, you know, even relative to the rest of the world. And that's because a lot of our appliances are not very efficient, but mostly because of that outdoor irrigation. That's a big, a big portion of it.
1: The 2022 state water plan for Texas predicted water supplies will decrease by 18 percent and demand will increase by 9 percent by 2070 in that same time frame, Texas's population could grow to 51 million people. That's up from the 30 million we have today.
0: Historically, as populations grew, as we needed more water, the equation was population is growing, therefore we're going to go find more water and bring it to us, right? We're going to drill more wells or we're going to build another reservoir or we're going to we're going to grow the amount. The equation now is disrupted. <laughs> The quantity of water is not going to increase. In fact, it's gonna decrease. There's no such thing as new water, right? But there are better ways to use it.
1: I'm Chris Blake and Texas wants to know, how will the state handle its current and looming water shortage with the population projected to surpass 50 million over the next 46 years? Why is Texas experiencing a water shortage right now?
2: Basically, we are in constant fight to try to meet demand. That's Fuad
1: Jaber. He's a professor and an extension specialist with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension.
2: We have an increasing population growth. And so every day, more people come in, more, more water is needed, but the sources are finite, especially in North Texas, because we're, completely based on surface water in, in North Texas. Back to Schlesinger, who we heard from off the top.
0: There's a couple of different factors. Um, the first is that Texas has always had prolonged drought that's punctuated by disastrous floods. So our history has always been based in having these really dramatic climate cycles.
3: Well, we've had an ongoing drought um, here,
1: especially down into the hill country, uh, parts of
3: South Texas. Even the panhandle was in a drought.
1: Dan Brunoff is the chief meteorologist at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth.
3: Of course, we had the second hottest summer ever recorded in the States here, uh, and up second warmest year across much of the state as far as temperatures go. So um, when there's warm temperatures and there's no rain, it just makes the drought worse and worse. But the Hill Country has been taking the brunt of it here over at least the past two years.
0: What's different is that we've got population projections that are not just really, really high, right? A 70% population growth over the next 50 years, but where those people are moving has changed dramatically than where they used to move in the past. So now we've got a quickly urbanizing state. Most of them are going into what we refer to sometimes as the Texas Triangle. So between Dallas, Houston, and the Austin-San Antonio Triangle, and then really along that I-35 corridor. So it means that where people are moving, that 70% population is going to require more water in those urban growth corridors.
1: According to the Texas Demographic Center, nearly 70% of the state's population lives in the Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, or Houston areas. Meanwhile, people are moving away from West Texas and the Gulf Coast, with the exception of Houston. First of all, how do we manage water now? And secondly, how does that need to change over the next 30, 40 years to make sure these projections are accurate?
2: Water use in the state is basically irrigation, and drinking water municipal water we call it which is industrial there's mining and there's the livestock this is what they divided into all these five i think all these uses are low except for the main two are municipal and irrigation and uh, irrigation is currently the biggest use and municipal is the second but by 2050 to 2060 irrigation is is uh, municipal water use is expected to exceed irrigation, right? And so so really looking at irrigation and water use is going to be the biggest two places where we can make a difference. Jabber
1: says it's unlikely we will see much of a decrease in water used for irrigation, growing crops in East Texas and in the Panhandle, so that leaves municipal water.
2: Municipal, on the other hand, is completely out of control. So Basically, if you think about your neighbors, if you live in a house, not an apartment, everybody has turf grass and the the irrigation of your lawn is not technically regulated, right? It's you. You turn it on, you turn it off. And so you have a lot of people who 99% of these people have never studied irrigation in their life. And they think the more water, the greener it is, right? And, and you know, the, the greener it is, is is a question right there. Like, why do you want it that green and that lush, which results in more mowing? But at the same time, uh, when they put that much water, they don't realize that some of that water goes as a runoff and is wasted. A lot of it doesn't stay if you water too much and water could infiltrate. And so it's not really benefiting your
1: turf grass. Most cities have restrictions on how many days a week residents can water or at what time of day but Jabber says even that is excessive.
2: You really don't need to water twice a week. Uh, even in, in the hot uh, in hot August, probably once a week is plenty, and when it's a little bit cooler in the earlier part of the summer or in September, you know, once every two weeks sometimes is plenty, depending on how much rainfall we get. So there's a lot of potential of conservation in turf grass. So
1: you're saying I could mow my lawn less and pay less on my water bill?
2: That's right, that's right.
0: One of the other unique factors that we have going on right now that's not unique to Texas but is true across the nation is that we've got aging and deteriorating infrastructure. So a lot of the infrastructure kind of you know, the pipes and treatment facilities that we put into place 50 and 60 years ago are nearing the end of their useful lifespan and they're starting to leak and starting to be less efficient, right? So we're not even making good use of the water that we do have available.
1: On the last Texas infrastructure report card that came out in 2021 – we got a C-minus when it came to our drinking water. What were some of the factors that went into that grade?
0: A lot of that report card has to do with risk. It's actually an assessment of how much risk exposure people are experiencing. And Texas can certainly see that right in the number of boil notices that came out in the past couple of years. We actually rank in one of the highest amount of boil notices in the nation that Texas experienced. And a lot of that is because of that aging infrastructure.
1: In 2022, there were roughly 3,000 water boil notices issued across the state. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, that's up from 1,500 in 2015 and 650 in 2008.
0: So a lot of time that boil notice is not being issued because they've found a contaminant necessarily, but because they can't certify from a risk perspective that a water quality standard has been maintained necessarily, right? And so I think that the the report card is a really strong indicator of this aging infrastructure. The fact that just our infrastructure is no longer adequate in being able to provide stable, safe, secure drinking water to this type of, of population growing pressure And also, it's not making good, efficient use of the water that we have.
1: So who's in charge of maintaining that or upgrading that? Does it fall on the state or does it fall to the cities, the counties, or some combination of everybody?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's not very straightforward. It's part of the... Mystery and challenge of how water infrastructure is funded in the United States and in Texas. And so for the most part, water infrastructure is funded by the ratepayer, by people like you and I through our water bill, right? So when we pay our water bill, what you're really paying for is the maintenance of your water infrastructure.
1: I know my water bill more than doubles in the summer. All that apparently unnecessary watering that Jabber was talking about.
0: For the most part, because infrastructure has become so expensive to build, right, our rates are no longer sufficient to pay down these huge loans that we have to take out, right? And so that's one of the big conversations that's been happening in Texas through the past legislative session and also on a national scale is – Hey, y'all, in the past, the way that we built all these dams and reservoirs were through these large federal loans and grants, right? And there are less and less grants available, particularly for small, smaller rural communities, right? So if you have a ratepayer base that's smaller and their affordability levels are, are lower, they're going to be less able to apply for a big desalination plant, for example, right? As their water becomes more scarce. And so th- we've got a really interesting conflict right now of an economies of scale model, right? Of how how do you fund water infrastructure in the way that it needs to be funded without making it unaffordable for an average ratepayer, And what role should the state have in providing loans and grants, particularly when you have an economically distressed or vulnerable community as well?
1: When we think about water sources in Texas, we often hear that the state gets much of its water from aquifers. In fact, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, Texas got more water from aquifers than just two other states, California and Arkansas.
0: I always tell people that when we talk about water security, it's a lot like your financial security. If you talk to a financial investor, right, and you talked about your financial portfolio, they would say, hey, diversify to reduce risk, right? That's, that's a concept that we all kind of generally get It's the exact same thing with water security. We need diverse uh, water sources and strategies and infrastructure to reduce risk.
1: An aquifer is a body of rock or sediment that holds water. Part of the nation's largest aquifer, the Ogallala, lies beneath the Texas panhandle and stretches all the way north to the South Dakota-Nebraska border.
0: And historically, a lot of Texas has been based, has relied on a single source of water, and that single source has often been groundwater, right? We're we're really fortunate in the state that we've got large, expansive aquifers. In the Dallas-Fort Worth area, y'all used to be I think Geyser City, at some point, I hope I'm not getting that wrong, but I'm pretty sure that you had an aquifer that was so full and had so much artesian pressure that if you poked a hole in the ground, it would just shoot up water, right, like 15 feet up in in the air. But that's been depleted over time.
1: Schlesinger is right. According to a Baylor University article, Waco was known as Geyser City for a time because of its abundance of artesian well water. The first well there was drilled in 1886, and the groundwater became the source of water for Dr. Pepper and Waco's first indoor pool. However, it started to dry up after about 30 years.
0: I think overall, big picture, Texas's water budget, to use a financial term, I think over 60% of it comes from groundwater still, right? And most of that is going to be in rural Texas. But in some cases, like San Antonio, still uses a big portion is 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 groundwater. But they've also mixed it now with brackish uh, water so kind of closer to desalination aquifer storage and recovery reuse where you're reusing retreating the water that you have as well so there's different you know these are the different strategies that you can use but you know we all we all went to primary school and learned the water cycle it's all connected right so the idea that groundwater and surface water don't impact each other is is not a very clear way of of thinking about the overall water, water cycle
4: the history around the edwards aquifer is uh quite contentious. You see that continuing today around a lot of water issues, but going back in time, you know, uh, several decades past, there had been a lot of interest in the Edwards Aquifer as as a resource because it was a sole source aquifer for much of South Central Texas.
1: Roland Ruiz is the general manager of the Edwards Aquifer Authority. The Edwards Aquifer is under much of West Texas, with its southeastern edge dipping into the Texas Hill Country near San Antonio.
4: And when I say sole source, uh, that's a designation that the federal government would give an aquifer when it was deemed to be the only source of viable water supply for a particular region. And and the Edwards was that for the greater San Antonio and surrounding area region. Things started to get really interesting uh, as you move into the 1980s with growth that came to this region.
1: Ruiz says the Edwards Aquifer Authority is responsible for managing the part of the aquifer that runs from Uvalde County in the west. To Bear County in the east. Bear County is where San Antonio is.
4: And that's the stretch of the aquifer that was so hotly discussed and debated going back, dating back to the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. Because it was a sole source aquifer for that region, as growth came and the population started to expand, there was a growing concern that uh San Antonio, as the major urban area in the region, was going to take the lion's share of water and there wouldn't be enough left for others.
1: Something that makes the Edwards Aquifer unique, Ruiz says, is that water not pumped out of the aquifer leaves naturally through springs.
4: And when we're talking about springs, there's two major spring systems that emanate from this aquifer, the Comal Springs in New Braunfels and the San Marcos Springs in San Marcos, obviously. Those two spring systems feed into uh, surface uh, rivers, uh, the San Marcos River and the Comal River. And then those two rivers feed into the Guadalupe River. There was the, the thinking back then that if the Edwards Aquifer was to be overused and depleted that those spring flows would dry up and as a result it would have a negative impact to the Guadalupe River and those users of surface water downstream.
1: A lawsuit is ultimately responsible for the formation of the Edwards Aquifer Authority. In 1991, the Sierra Club sued those regulating the aquifer, saying it was harming protected species downstream. A federal judge agreed and gave the Texas legislature a chance to establish its own regulatory body. It became the Edwards Aquifer Authority
4: what was once highly contentious, very divisive, today has become kind of a, a, a unifier in many ways as we become more aware of the importance of the resource uh, as a water supply and the value in managing it effectively. For the Edwards in particular, we have been in drought restrictions for the better part of those two years we don't have programs that eliminate droughts. We don't have programs. There's no silver bullet in any of this that, that takes out all the problems. We simply manage through droughts to get to the next rainy season. And then we manage from drought to drought. And we know that's the reality. That's been the history that we've seen uh, in the records and the documentation of, of weather patterns for, for, for this part of the, of the state.
1: I'm curious, is there a formula where X amount of rainfall equals X amount of water going back into the aquifer, or is it not that black and white?
4: It's. I don't think you could say there's a formula. And and the reason I say that is because weather guys are going to love this answer, because I think they'd probably be happy to use it too. It depends. Our answer is always, it depends.
1: I think Dan Brunoff, who we heard from earlier, would appreciate that
4: so it depends where the rain where, where the rain falls within the region you know it depends does it fall in what we would call the watershed to the aquifer and for us it's really the texas hill country if you think about the Texas Hill Country, it's hilly. It's it's really kind of a rocky terrain. The elevation is higher than it is down here in San Antonio. And what what happens is, when it rains up that way, water collects and it cr- and it comes downstream in, in surface streams and uh, creeks. And as it makes its way down towards us, some of that water is lost in the rivers and streams because it's it's escaping to the subsurface. And that subsurface is basically the Edwards Aquifer.
1: If you paid close attention to Ruiz earlier, you heard him mention the Comal and Guadalupe Rivers. And if you've lived in Texas for any length of time, there's a good chance you've sat in an inner tube with a beverage of your choice and floated one of those rivers for
4: hours. And there's a lot of recreation. There's a lot of tourism that's based on on, on these, these water features. And so it's really critical. I mean, maintaining the Edwards in a way that's that's healthy and viable it means that you're cutting across the entire spectrum of of the uh, economic well-being for for this for this region you're impacting farmers to the west you're impacting the urban center for the region which is san antonio and its growth uh with its its corporate base and then you're impacting the recreational tourism that occurs to the east of us and so there's something for everyone there's an interest for everyone in this resource everyone's interest is slightly different but in the end a healthy viable edwards is is good for everyone
1: what are some things that we can do in Texas to either conserve water better or find ways to reuse water that we're not doing right now? Or what are some of the things that you guys are pushing for uh, in the state moving forward?
0: I think one of the big, big efforts that just occurred through the the last legislative session and through this latest round of constitutional amendments is to create a new fund, a Texas water fund that provides an additional $1 billion towards this water infrastructure, for new water supply, to address that aging infrastructure. But as a state, I think the big question moving forward is going to be making sure that we're investing in in that infrastructure so that we're not losing water in the ground, right? Because as you have that aging infrastructure, that's what's happening. In some cases, 20%, 30%, 40% of the water is being lost out of cracked aging infrastructure. And that's that's not efficient, but it takes a lot of investment, right? And, and I think that we're going to be called as a state to, to really reconsider how it is that we're developing, right? And all this population growth, a lot of it is occurring in the peri-urban area, so just outside of the city.
1: In the last Texas legislative session in 2023, the Texas Water Foundation worked to establish the House Water Caucus. It included dozens of members from both parties all over the state.
0: I think it's also a signal, frankly, the fact that there aren't very many topics that legislators get to work on anymore that are really bipartisan and really about some of these fundamental things, right? And water is one of those fundamental things that doesn't get a lot of media attention because it's not time bound, right? There's, there's rarely, unless it's a winter storm, Yuri, and half the state is without water, or there's rarely a dramatic flare that makes people pay attention to the fact that this is a slow boiling, pun intended, crisis that we all need to be involved in.
1: Lawmakers can change policies and explore new ways to import water to Texas, but there's at least one thing they can't legislate, the weather. Back to Dan Brunoff. Is there anything that indicates what weather patterns we could be seeing over the next couple decades, or is that something that's hard to even begin to think about?
3: Well, that's hard to think about. But the trends uh, since the year 2000, there's a lot of records for warmth and there's been more droughts, more extreme weather, not just in Texas, but all the California wildfires, their drought ongoing. Um, And you look back at a lot of the climatological stats, especially for precipitation and temperature extremes, especially warmth, a lot of these records have been since 2000. We're trending warmer and drier in areas of the country, but we don't know if the Earth's temperature rises two degrees, okay, which is significant over the next fifty years, uh, and the polar ice uh, caps start melting more, sea level sea levels will rise. But that's salt water; really can't do anything with that. But what we don't know, the unknown question, is when we have a two to three degree temperature rise in the next 100, 200 years, will the deserts turn into rainforests? Right, because. Thunderstorms need heat, right? And and with, with more intense heat, areas that are normally dry could become wetter and areas that are wetter could become drier. That's the stuff we don't know because we're messing with the atmosphere, okay? And the atmosphere is going to do what it wants to do. To tell you exactly what's going to happen in 50 years from now, uh, where the droughts are going to be, it's virtually
1: impossible. I'm Chris Blake at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thanks for joining me for Texas Wants to Know. If you like the show, please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I wrote, edited, and produced this episode with editorial support from Cooper Malm and original music by Michael Eisenstein. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan.